Drive-by cinema. Three nachos and a foaming thermos of fun. Bonjour, mon ami. Welcome to Drive-by Cinema Series 2, Episode 35. I'm Rick. Alezi. Or Richard. And with me is my co-host, Paul. Actually, I had a French name at school. A French name? Yeah, you know, like the French who, like, insisted on saying, Bonjour, écoutez, répétez. You know, speaking that French in the instructions in in school. She gave us all those little nameplates that you had to make. Triangle, sort of Toblerone nameplates. And on one side you had your English name, and on the other side you had this French name that she gave you. And what was your French name? My French name was Guy. <laughs> G-U-Y, as in Guy Fawkes. Bonjour, Guy. <laughs> Allez-y. Right. Hey, Paul. Yeah. What were we speaking French for? Anyway, we'll get on to that. But go on. So, Paul, as usual, we're going to do corrections and omissions on. Oh, fucking hell. Now, do you think that you maybe said anything incorrectly last time? Oh, it depends what you buy incorrect, doesn't it, really? Can I just... I mean, have you even listened to... Have you have you listened to the last episode at all? I mean... I haven't listened to the last episode, so it might. But you were there when it was recorded. Yeah, I was there when it was recorded. However, I was not there when it was edited. So, by some curious edit, you know, all my wrong sayings might have somehow got in there. You give me so much to work with. That's a problem, Paul. Look, there you go. At the end, what? and you threw this in right at the end. You didn't oh, have to. It was an added extra. No need for you it. You said what? You you said that one of the. One of the stars who plays one of the couple, Jamie and Jamie, in Shorts. Yes, it's true. He's married he's... to the... Carbonaro. Carbonaro. Michael, Michael Carbonaro. Carbonaro. You were wrong. Because those two actors are married one to each other. They're a real couple, Jamie and Jamie. Get right away now. I'm absolutely right on that, in fact. No, you're not. Because Carbonaro is managed... He's, he's married. He's married... To the guy who plays the voyeur across the way. Oh, I'm sorry. Because you've offended both couples, haven't you? There, in one, two, well, in I, one. I, the movie was all about swapping, wasn't it? I mean, they might, they might, they, they might carry it on into real life. Many. It was presumably painful enough to have to watch their lovers, you know, screw one another in the film in the course of making that film, without. Without you mixing up their married partners in real so, life. You're saying the two leads, like Jamie and James, James are actually together in real life? Yes, that's what it says in the Wikipedia page that I read wow. here. Okay. No, well, well, I was wrong. I'm sorry. But oh, what you there. did do... No, listen. I ended up watching the Carbonara effect on YouTube <laughs> over and over again because it's really, much. really good. Isn't it good? I mean, it's quite repetitive, but... It's really good at the same time. It's it's just got a, a real good way. The best ones are where he's playing someone who is as surprised as the person he's pranking. Yeah. And, you know, he's really excited about it. It's just amazing. There's one where he's in a record shop. And he also does these amazing disguises, right? He's always in character. Yeah. In a detailed disguise. So in the record shop, he's, he's wearing like a rocker's denim jacket, studs all over uh-huh. him, and like a mullet, a rock mullet or something. And he's pretending he's got this record where, <laughs> a vinyl record, by the way, where the lady comes into the shop, she writes down on the record sleeve like four things. And supposedly it's a nursery rhyme that writes itself. <laughs> 
So when he takes a record out and puts it on the record player, it sings about the stuff that she wrote on the outside. And he's like, wow, I don't know how that works. It's amazing, isn't it? <laughs> That's quite easy. Got somebody singing to a tannoy next door, I imagine, or something. I imagine, yeah, yeah. Yeah. They're really, really good. But no, the best one I saw actually as after we recorded is that he's he's not in a store because usually he's behind a counter in a store. So, you know, it's it's sure. useful for yeah. you know hiding props and that kind of thing and, and doing sleight of hand. He's actually out on the beach uh, by sort of a boat uh, by you know by by a boat that's docked up there like a like a you know like a standard sailing boat or whatever. And he's convincing people that the girl is a mermaid, and <laughs> it's incredible. <laughs> like. To start off with, the girl says, oh, can I have a sip of your water to the random passerby? She takes a sip of the water. And when she's finished drinking, there's like this little rainbow fish inside the water bottle that have come from her mouth or something, you know. I'm like, wow, what have you done there? And then she like, then she just turns into a mermaid and swims off to the sea with these giant flipper, flipper feet kind of thing. And uh, it's it's so convincing that they just can't believe it. They're screaming at him. You're like, she's a mermaid. She's a freaking mermaid kind of thing. So, yeah. Should explain for those that haven't seen this. It's I think it's from a true TV channel show in which he does a hidden camera stunt in a shop or, as you say, on the dockside or wherever it is with the public. And he does this magic trick all framed around whatever it is he's doing. It could be selling a product or, you know, pretending someone's a mermaid or whatever. And then he always reveals it at the end in the same way. He'll go, and yeah, apparently the way it works is this, through this thing called the Carbonara Effect. <laughs> Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> like, obviously, that's the name of a TV show. Yeah. So some of them very rarely go, oh, yeah, I think I've heard of that. Is that a TV show? Richard, any more corrections? No, Paul. Yeah, there you go. You mentioned the Carbonara oh. Effect last week. Now that I've seen it, I Two fully agree. It's, re- it's really good. Not bad for me. I though. did have a correction. I have made a terrible mistake. Oh. Way back, a few episodes back. Oh, no, it was on the spectral one. Right. Where they're in Moldova. And I said, I threw a throwaway comment. A throwaway Here he goes, backtracking already. I said something about the Marvel Cinematic Universe when I said it was the Moldovan Accords or something that, right. that they all signed up to. And, apparent, and that big fight in one of the Avengers movies, I said, was in Moldova. It oh. wasn't. It was in the fictional Eastern European country of Sokovia. I think it's it's correction already, Richard, haven't you? It's the Segovian Accords. Oh, well, there you go. Well, that's a meta correction, isn't it? I've accidentally corrected myself twice, where once only would have been sufficient. Not sure. I think you have. Or I'm I'm suffering deja vu. Well, or deja vu, as it were. Or veja du, which I think is the name of... What? <laughs> like a rock band's album from from whenever rock was big. Yeah, right, Richard, yeah. Mm. Did you know Dolce & Gabbana, if you if you reverse the D I've and the G them. and get Golte oh, no. and Dabana, it means like yes. riot and revolution or something in Italian. Oh, very meaningful. I'll see about doing a T-shirt on that, like doing like a... A Mimi t-shirt, the Mimi's that the young people like on Tok Tok. <laughs> I think you might get in trouble, maybe, with some kind of passing off thing. I don't uh, know. It's true. But you get away with the spoonerism, couldn't you? Maybe. Got to sell them in a suitcase and hoof it out of there before they find you. Kind of Perhaps that should be our first piece of drive-by cinema swag, then, is your Gulch and the Banner t-shirt. Yes. 
That's a nice idea. <laughs> Cue music. C'est bon, Guy. <laughs> oui, Richard. <laughs> Listen, Bessie Blue. It's 1986. A year, by the way, which many people are judged to be the best year. <laughs> it's objectively true. Have you never heard that? I don't know. I think it was the year I finished measuring my penis. I'm not sure about that. You finished? When did you start? And how long did I don't it know, maybe two years earlier or something. I can't remember. But yeah, I'd lost it's interest. A long-term project. I'd lost interest. <laughs> I'd lost interest in, you know, in how far it went to log a ruler. I mean... <laughs> I have finished Age of by this time, definitely. I've never been particularly concerned about it, but, you know, what can I say? It, does, it doesn't matter, does it, really? No, it At doesn't. the point, when you reach the point where someone is able to take a judgment on it, you know, really, the hard work has been done already, <laughs> hasn't it? Right? <laughs> At that point, it's like, well, this is what's in the butcher's <laughs> shop, take it or fucking leave it, you know. You know, oh, it's a long trip to the co-op at this time kind of thing, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, yeah. Except for Naked Attraction, then that's, that's all on show, yeah. True. Uh, you get plenty of Willy in Betty Blue as well. Oh, God. I've, I'm yeah, sorry to talk about Willy all the time. There is a lot of just hanging out Willy walking around the house here, isn't there? Very comfortable around nakedness. It's not erect, though, unlike in Short Bus. So, mm. you know, who knows? We don't really know how. And his name is Zorg. Amazingly. <laughs> yeah. What's all that about? Uh, but yeah, 1986 is a classic year. I, I think it's unbelievably an unbelievable Why, year. Yeah, so you haven't said why 1986 is a wonderful year. I, I agree with you, potentially, if I can remember it, but what's good about it? I, I seem to remember there was a lot of good music around in 1986. I don't of remember course. very much. Belinda Carlisle, probably. Tiffany. I think some, uh, what she called that page three model, Samantha. Samantha Fox. I think she released a single in 1986. Everything was coming together. I imagine Squitty Politti was in the charts. Everything felt good. It was an unusual time. <laughs> in many ways, everything's been going downhill since 1986. And everything was going up. High water mark. 1986. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah, It was the zenith. Um, yeah, I knew you were going to challenge me on that. I should have thought of more examples. I did, I did hear something the other I'm, day. I'm not disagreeing. I'm just asking for a little more detail, that's all. 1986, but I was fully expecting this film to be bad or to bore me or depress me. Well, let's just point out um, the only available. I mean, it was difficult to find it where it was streaming, and you know, listeners will want to know where you can stream it. You can stream it on the Japanese streaming site Rakuten, or you can go to the British Film Institute BFI streaming site uh, and subscribe for free and pay for it there. Uh, it's one ninety nine on both sites, I think. But yeah, it's difficult to find. And the only thing they had available was a director's cut, which isn't the usual two hours, the original two hour film. It's a sumptuous three hours. Oh, I sat down to this film thinking it's going to be French. It's going to be. It's going to start with a sex scene. It does start with a sex scene. Go on, Richard Curran. Potentially, it's going to be a grueling, nihilistic expedition into love and hatred and the human psyche. Yeah. And I thought I was going to hate it for three hours. I thought it was going to drag on and that, you know, an hour and a half in, I would be wondering what the hell. So let me just say that before I 
press play, I was already sort of girding myself and I've prepared for it. And I think that put me in actually a decent place to absorb this movie. And in the in the event, I I actually quite liked it. That's because, right? Well, yeah. as I found out, I was doing me, doing me doing me research for this. It's part of cinema do look. Okay, cinema what does do that look. Mean, Paul? The cinema of look. Look. As it? No, I can't. I, I'm becoming too Lancastrian. L O O K. Look. Look. Okay. Cinema de look. Okay. Which means it's all about how it looks and not about how it thinks. Which is, which is, you know, it was a, a term formed uh, pejoratively to talk about these this era of French movie making, which is, it's all about the style. Very little about the form or the structure or, or indeed any message. And that it's like a series of, it's like watching a series of Nick Kamen, Levi adverts kind of thing, but strung together. Oh, it's sumptuously filmed, right? It is. Yeah. It's like a coffee table book of fine pictures. Great photography. It's like everything is so beautifully framed, you know. Yeah. You couldn't imagine making two people drinking Heineken at a at a <laughs> at a at a cracked old table in a in a, in a dusty old uh, beach chalet more beautiful, do you know what I mean? It's the lighting, the shadows, the colour, everything. You know, it's just it's just beautifully, beautifully arranged. I mean, all the background pieces, you know, all the furniture is laid out to perfect ratios, like 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 some sort of piece of Renaissance art. It is, I would say, visual art of the highest order, without doubt. Whether mm. it's whether it needs to hold any substance uh, as a psycho- psychological, erotic psychological drama, I don't know. I, I think simply as 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 it's, as a set piece of visual art, it works. But anyway. As you say, the film starts, opens, bang, with them fucking. Yeah. Absolutely beautifully. Meticulously lit under a picture, under a Mona Lisa on the wall. Uh, it's a fabulous piece of cinematography. And they are really fucking quite well. Got yeah, for 86, because this is mainstream cinema, you know, compared to how Hollywood would portray sex scenes. Uh, one, I mean, it's. I mean, it's not gritty or real sex, is it? It's quite stylized, but at the same time, it's obviously much more genuinely presented than than anything Hollywood did at times, isn't it? I think. Well, the two actors had a thing, didn't they? Famously, supposedly. I didn't know that. Well, I think it was their first big project for both of them. Oh, definitely. I think they, yeah. they spent a lot of time together working on this. I don't know whether they were really properly romantically involved but they certainly you know like bonded over doing this and it's one of those films I mean obviously short but we know it was real sex right you can see that it's real sex but in this everyone thinks or assumes that they were doing some real sex stuff it's not obvious that they were but you could believe it and I think that's what you're saying it's very authentic isn't it very authentic Uh, yeah Beatrice Dallas is her first movie I think or maybe a second uh, the first one was relatively minor independent thing. She was plucked out from nowhere, you know, to land this role. She was a bit, she was a model at the time, I think, in Paris on the catwalks. We get a voiceover from the guy Zorg, as we find out, and it's, he's explaining that he's known he's known Betty for a week, and mm-hmm. I wasn't sure whether this is a flash, a sort of slight flashback, um, 
because the next scene is her dropping uh, a suitcase at his doorstep. So is yes. that like a week later? They shagged first. Presumably they're shagging after they met. It's a little somewhere. time montage. I think you're right in saying that. Yeah, yeah. It's interesting. You know, if this was a rom com type thing, you would see their meet cute. You would see where they met. But we don't. We don't know that. That's just barely alluded to. They never even mention how it is they 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 met. But she's a waitress. Apparently, she was complaining about her boss sexually assaulting her. I think. Mm-hmm. And she's sort of moving in with him after a week, which is quite, a, you know, you might say, people use the phrase of red flag, don't they? <laughs> yes, definitely. Live wire. He calls her a hellcat at some point. I mean, she arrives wearing an apron and knickers and nothing else. There's a lot of side boob. And she looks... An awful lot of side boob, yeah. yeah. She... she Manages to very casually look amazing in most of this film. Yeah, like one of his older, like the guys on site, because he works on a on a resort site with the little little chalets on 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 stilts, kind of thing, right by the beach. Uh, it's actually a real place in the south of France, population five thousand, really, really beautiful, very, 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 very unaffected kind of place. Uh, like the other guys on the site saying, which is a bit. Bit of a slapper, isn't she? Kind of thing, but she manages to carry it off in a very Monroe-esque way, doesn't she? She's like, she it's, does, yeah. It's street style that she's got, but it's there's a certain je ne sais quoi about it. She really carries it off with panache. You're right. It is a Monroe-esque performance. It I is. Really isn't thought it? of that. Yeah. It's classy but trashy. You know what I mean? And it plays on that. It did strike me that Betty seemed right at the start already to be pretty exhausting. Like, yeah. <laughs> I actually thought because I forgot because like I have watched bits of Betty Blue, but never from the beginning. Right? It's almost like I don't know. I think but I just was probably, fast forward to the sex. Like, I don't know. It's probably like eight. You don't need to. 20. It's right at the beginning. Yeah. <laughs> we have a mutual friend uh, called Stephen, uh, who uh, I think was a huge fan of this, and uh, I think several times over beers and whatnot, it was put on, and. I was moving in and out, drifting out of the room and saw bits of it. So I never actually saw, saw the beginning. Well, she's in this very emotional state. She's complaining about a job and, you know, and about how she's being sexually assaulted by a boss. And it does seem, I mean, this is a week into knowing this guy and she's kind of moving in, throwing herself at his mercy, laying is all that the normal? problems on him. I don't know whether that's normal. I would think. I've got to review the people that I meet, haven't I? <laughs> but I would, <laughs> you know, there's a phrase, quite an, un, uh, perhaps an unkind and misogynistic phrase, but there's a phrase which is "Don't stick your dick in crazy." I suppose <laughs> well, there's the there's the Jennifer graph, isn't there? The Jennifer, well, no, it's not the Jennifer graph. Jennifer, it's what they call the Jennifer Tiffany graph. Oh, it's really famous, Richard. As soon as I mention it, you'll know what I'm talking about. It's a guy who draws a graph about here's good looking, here's good looking a woman, here's not good looking a woman, here's crazy in a woman, and you've got to stay in this area today, but you can you can <laughs> you can mess around in that area. I forgot what it's called. Obviously, there is a reverse equivalent, presumably, which is don't let crazy stick his dick in you. But the the yeah. point is, you know, and and it's obvious, I suppose, throughout this movie that Betty is looks so stunning mm-hmm. that. Zorg is willing to put up with a great deal, actually sacrifice a huge amount to maintain a relationship with her because she is 
kind of endearing. You know, at the start, I was already thinking, God, she's exhausting. I don't, you know, I'm not sure I would want a relationship. But do you remember she, Transvision Vamp? I do, yeah. Wendy James. I, I, you know, I think, did Wendy James style herself after this? Sorry? 1986, I would imagine. Yeah. Or thereabouts. Like, Betty has this wild child thing on her, but she's not like Wendy James. She's not like, spoilt with it at all. There's, no, you know, there's, no. an imp- there's an impudence to her temper and, you know, and all that kind of stuff. She's irresponsible and, and highly strong. Uh, but somehow, well, it's, it's portrayed as being genuine and not, not indulged in. So, so yeah, but I know what you mean. Very high maintenance to a certain, to a certain level. Yeah. But also, I'd imagine quite infuriating to live with. There's this thing about what happens is next is he's been living in this like beach shack for yeah. free because he does jobs odd jobs as a repairer and he's got this boss who obviously owns all this property this grubby guy in a very nice car a lot of car porn in this film it is a, a Citroen. Citroen DS yeah the kind of film that Jolien would love to watch the cars in I would imagine yeah listen to Jolien uh, yeah this grubby guy drives up in this Citroen and He's obviously been tipped off that he's got this girl staying there, and he's not too happy about it. But he's quite happy to see her lounging around naked. He chats with the guy, and he says, "Listen, you know, um, I, I might have to let you go, you know, but uh, if you want to stay here, you can paint all these shacks. There's like <laughs> five hundred shacks on the beachfront, seemingly this grubby guy owns, owns, and they're drinking coffee out of giant bowls, which is something." I always remember being taught in French lessons that French people did, but I've never actually seen a French person do. What did you think about the resort? I mean, these days, you know, these little, these little uh, beach huts would be worth million, a million pounds if they were next to somewhere near on, on the beach on Bournemouth kind of thing. But do you think back in 86 they were supposed to look good or look grubby? Well, they're all occupied by elderly residents, aren't they? Oh, they're supposed to be, it's supposed to be it's grubby. Like a retirement okay. place. Because, I mean, these days it just looks so fabulously authentic, do you know what I mean? But... Talking about the look of it, you know, they're they're painting these beach huts in these like real eighties pastels, aren't Elton they? Elton John colours, yeah. Blue and yellow and pink. Uh, blue and yellow are big, big themes in this film. I mean, the theme, the colours are those bright pastels straight from straight from I'm Still Standing with Elton yeah. John. The video after that one, yeah, which was probably nineteen eighty six, wasn't it? And we saw it on a beach in France, also. So she pitches in to help, which is. You know, she continually manages to endear herself, I think, yeah. through this movie. Uh, she pitches in to help painting the shacks with Zorg. And she's quite good at painting. She, she's fast and she helps him and, out. And sexy, let's face facts. And amazingly sexy. No better painting assistant would you want. They didn't sand them down, though, before they started painting, Paul. Is that... what? Am I worried no. nothing about that? Well, apparently you can just paint over it. Paint over the dust, paint over the hair. It doesn't matter. Is that okay? Wow. Blimey. Okay. And yeah, th- this is the point about Betty is she's not like wild child. She doesn't pout at all at any point, does she? Well, she does pout, but in a very cutesy Marilyn Monroe kind of way. So like you can see how beguiling she is and that he's bewitched by her. But uh, I, what does she see in him? That's perhaps a bigger question. Yeah. He's quite emotionally flat. Does she get stability from him, maybe? Because he's quite emotionally flat, isn't he? I think that must be it, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, but also, 
He's quite good looking, isn't he? She's well, he's very, oh no, he's exceptionally good looking. He's quite a bit older than her, Paul. I mean, I again, he's like thirty-five, isn't he, or something like that? I think he's supposed to be thirty. She's only supposed to be nineteen, though. Nineteen-year-old wow. waitress. So, by your reckoning from last week's film, you'd say that this was be unacceptable these days. Oh, I don't know. Is that is that Romeo and Juliet kind of the course of public opinion? I think that might just scrape by these days. He's not got very many prospects initially, but she discovers no. that he's a writer. He's got all these manuscripts. She discovers this because at some point she's chucking all of his things out of the window. But in terms of plot development, uh, it wasn't just once. I mean, it, several times where they have an argument, she throws stuff and they move to somewhere new. Right? <laughs> and this is like, they didn't move somewhere new this time, but the boss came around and discovered her throwing stuff. Well, maybe they did. I can't remember. Because she threw stuff twice. She does it a few the, times, In the beach yeah. hut. Yeah, or yeah. Two or three times in the beach hut. Uh, and throws stuff at the boss and shows him her pudenda. Uh, she's pointed out that she's not wear- she doesn't wear any knickers to cover so like the the sexual politics of this are also something ripe to this because I think towards the end of this podcast but yeah so she she started throwing stuff around and out the house out the beach hut and of course she discovers his uh, his little uh, his little canon of literary effort it's not little he's got a box full it's, of magic gigantic yeah, yeah. and she immediately starts reading them and kind of devours them, sort of reads them non-stop. But I think about this time, as they were painting, we that, that old guy who ratted them out plays the saxophone while they paint, which is pure style again, isn't it? There's absolutely pure no style. reason yeah, yeah. that this would happen. But you get that amazing... What style? An amazing shot as well of the sunset over the beach with the colours, which is uh-huh. like a picture, you know, picture postcard. It's a poster image it's, it looks amazing absolutely uh, at some point after they've been fucking in the beach hut and you know the the impression that they're giving is they've got an ideal life right he make, makes this point you know they've got this place it's on the beach it looks amazing they've they're fucking all the time and eating what presumably is quite primitive French food yes turkey and walnuts Yes, that's right. She yes, cuts you like it. She's like, I love dinner. it. It's like, who's ever had turkey or walnuts? But there you go. It must be a French thing. Rustic but sophisticated. At one point after they've after they've fucked or after they're in bed, he's been painting all day, I think. She puts him in bed, looks after him, and she kisses his dick and says, sleepy warm slug. <laughs> Can I just get to... Th- Again, we'll, we'll probably touch on, this as, touch on this as she touched on that. It's... it's <laughs> Like, sexual politics have moved some way in 35 years. Like, one, the fact that he doesn't really get angry about the fact she's been assaulted by her, her restaurant boss, and some of the workers too, apparently. Uh, two, uh, the actions of his boss when, like, she comes to the door and she's sort of semi-naked. But He just lectures at her, yeah. yeah. You know, but three, like, he, like, tries to initiate sex with her. Every time she's upset, it's like, oh, like he cuddles her, so stop crying, and then then he starts like going at her, you know, and like it's it's so strange, really, all of it. Like the intimacy of their sexual relationship is quite sometimes quite challenging to watch, isn't it? Mm. You really feel as though you're invading on their private time when you're watching some of this movie. Yeah, definitely. She gets pissed off, doesn't she, at his boss because it's revealed to her that they've got to paint all five hundred of these huts. And at this point, she throws a can of pink paint all over his citron. 
<laughs> and again, what fabulous, what fabulous style. It's mannerist style, but what fabulous style. Yeah. Uh, oh, yeah, definitely right. And I remember at this point, I, I paused the movie because I was worried about the length of the movie. And I'm, we're about 25 minutes in now. Yeah. And I'm thinking, you know, has she been here one week? Is this how long it's been? And at this point, she's having an existential crisis and complaining that she can't admire him suddenly. How can I love you if I can't admire you? Oh, sorry, no, stand up to your boss. How can I, um, how can I love you? Always something wrong with a guy, she says. Always something wrong with a guy. Yeah. And, it, and then she finds his writing. She tosses everything off the table in one move and sits down and reads all of his books. Um, and he's wearing a fetching yellow vest and jean shorts. The old blue and yellow again. Yeah. To do his painting in. It's a strange look. Anyway. Uh, at some point, she the, the hat boss comes back. She pushes him off the porch of the beach hut. And he lands on a big pile of sand. She then chucks everything out of the window. Uh, and then she burns the place down with a hurricane lamp. <laughs> and so they have to like hitchhike or something out of there. They have to get away. And they wind up in Paris. She's got a friend there who's recently widowed uh, with an empty... It wouldn't be empty these days. An empty hotel on the Seine or empty B&B on the Seine. Uh, Her friend's called Lisa. And as you say, they go there to stay. She gives them room 13. And uh, Betty starts typing all of Zorg's manuscripts on a typewriter. In the director's cut, essentially, the first half of the movie is a prologue extensive for the rest of the movie. (laughs) Right. And and so we're still only a quarter of the way through, aren't we, basically? And this second half in Paris is still the first half of the movie where we're just... Well, he's setting up a lot of sex... Uh, for their relationship to tumble wrongly down a hill from, isn't he, really? Look, I think we've got to talk a bit about the length of this film. Obviously, adding an hour <laughs> to the runtime in a director's cut, that's extreme. Yes. And it's very difficult to say that this is not overlong. But on the other hand, he's asking you, the director is asking you to buy into the love affair between Zorg and Betty. Yes. And I think it probably does benefit from forcing you to endure, you know, more of it. I think you have to fall in love with Betty to understand, you know, how he can love her properly because she is a live wire. You know, she she does, as you say, have a habit of burning everything down one way or another. <laughs> <laughs> But the thing for me that I struggle with is, is that, you know, in terms of the reputation of French cinema, you'd expect them both to be slightly more intellectual than they are. Do you know what I mean? They're, they're quite ordinary people. Uh, and That's the relatability of it, though, isn't it? I mean... Yeah, I, I, I think it's well-pitched. I mean, what I'm saying is there's all that French joie de vivre and all that French ambiance and... and all that looking good while still being newly bohemian and aesthetic about things, you know. Uh, but yet they're still quite ordinary people. So I, I thought it was interesting, really, because, like, if this was an American movie, these would definitely be intellectuals, you know, listening to jazz and sipping their coffee whilst they're having their argument. Whereas <laughs> it's, it, it, a lot of it is very down-to-earth and very French, you know. And it I, is. I, I, I thought it quite exuberant in the way that, 
you could really get the sense of Frenchness from it, you know, when he's kicking oh, off outside. Absolutely. The, if France is comes out so well in this movie. Doesn't it? Yeah. It's like a love affair. It's a tourist board film. It is a tourist board film, yeah. How, how amazing yeah. France is. A year in Provence, you know. It's like, when he's kicking off outside the hospital later on, you know, there's this just a wonderful sense of how that could not happen in Germany, for example, you know. Like, ah, uh, life goes on and they've had an argument <laughs> and he walks off kind of thing. It's all very... Gallic shrug of the shoulders kind of stuff. When he's debating with his boss about if he's going to do the work or not, you know, you just get this very the 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 sense of freedom that the gen, the French genuinely embrace. I think uh, really comes across. So, so yeah. And also, you know, Zorg really get he he is quite an engaging character. You say, what does she see in him? You know, when mm-hmm. he meets Lisa and stuff. She obviously warms to Zorg as well. And there's a scene where she's walking the dog or whatever she's doing, and he's talking to her, and he's encouraging Lisa to go out and meet a guy because she's been a widow and stuff. And she does, yeah. basically, almost immediately. She goes and finds Eddie. He is a really nice guy. He has a little three-way cuddle with her, her Lisa, and uh, and Betty on the bed. It doesn't become sexual at all. So he's, he's a really nice, cuddly guy who doesn't take things too far. And later on, the butcher's wife tries to... Seduce him, and he she just does, yeah. refuses. He know? does. He turns her down. Yeah. So he's, he's a, he is a nice guy, actually. Zorg, isn't he? Apart from a moment where maybe he indulges in cocaine when he shouldn't do, really. But apart from that, oh yeah, that's a bit strange. Strange insertion. He he's he's fond, as is Betty, actually, of the tequila rapido. <laughs> <laughs> Weren't we all twenty five years ago? Is it isn't. That just a tequila slammer? Is that what we call it? It is just a tequila slammer. However, I think in '86 it would have had a level of exoticism that it doesn't hold today. Because <laughs> he goes into a beautiful, beautiful French bar, and it's a Pernod bar that sells beer as well. But he goes in and asks for a tequila, and he can't get one, of course, because it's 1986 and tequila's a, a strange commodity. As are olives, because as an olive salesman, <laughs> as an olive salesman, yeah, selling olives for a suitcase. I'm sure that's supposed to be surrealism, and it is very surreal. They just get they just get the olive salesman drunk. It's amazing, yeah. So the point is that Zorg tends to have a rip roaring time in life, and through his encouragement, Lisa finds a guy uh, yeah. who who's the boss of the local pizza restaurant. He's another genuinely nice guy, by the way. Yes, he, he is a nice guy. Eddie, he owns Pizza Stromboli. Yes. Um, and they all four of them start to have a rip roaring time. And this is the happy moment. This is the happiest moment in the movie, isn't it? They have a rip roaring yeah. time. You know, they're they're behaving like teenagers, but on a champagne budget. You know, be a lifestyle on a champagne budget. They're having a wonderful time. Uh, Eddie's got an even nicer Citroen, a Citroen CX, like the new one from the nineteen eighties. Oh uh, yeah, he's very proud of the suspension when he drives up to the hotel to the B and B, isn't he? See, uh, no one, no one who owns a Citroen. Cannot tell you about suspension. Uh, <laughs> at some stage, they will definitely show it off. <laughs> He's got a delightful self-aware interest, uh, passion for bad ties, uh, and uh, yeah, he's he. I, the 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 four of them have so much fun. And one scene is where the two of the, two, the two lads are getting on so well that they just get a get an olive salesman uh, a drunk. I don't know. Are they, is he coming to the restaurant to sell olives? He must be. I don't know. That's right, yeah. He's showing. He's got a suitcase with lots of different varieties of olives, and they're trying them all out, uh, but mostly getting him drunk on tequila rapidos. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> it turns out that all of them are therefore employed by Eddie to go and work and help out at the pizza restaurant. 
They do, yeah. I wasn't sure whether that's an ongoing thing or they're just doing it for a night, but they wind up... Zorg winds up as a waiter, and obviously Betty's been a waitress before, so perhaps she's more used to it. But there is a very, very rude customer in the pizza restaurant. And you'd think she'd be used to rude waiting staff in Paris. Yeah. But um, she she's rude to... Well, she orders a pizza margarita after a long, lot of de- deliberation. Maybe pizza is a new thing in Paris in 1986. It I seems exotic. <laughs> she doesn't know what to get. Eventually, she gets a margarita. And when it's brought to her, she complains it doesn't have what she ordered on it, which is some other stuff, presumably. And she is rude to Betty. And as a consequence, uh, I think... Oh, yeah, that's right. Uh, Zorg makes a pizza with stuff out of the garbage, like old <laughs> spaghetti and moldy lettuce and stuff. And the woman loves it. She devours the pizza. But at some point, um, and Betty loses it, and she stabs this woman in the arm with a fork, you know, trying to calm everything down. And it also turns out about this time, this is the sort of everything starting to fall apart moment, isn't it? It also turns out that Zorg's novel perhaps isn't very good because the publisher's letters that are coming back are very scathing about it. Which he can't bear to show Betty after she spent all this time typing them up and sending them off and encouraging him to do what he didn't dare do himself. One morning he's sharing some of these letters with Eddie, sort of commiserating with him as it were, and Betty starts to come down the stairs. And for some reason that I'm not completely persuaded by... They de- Eddie decides the best way to hide the letters is to put them in his mouth. Uh, but Not the second time. Another letter comes through and Betty intercepts it. Yeah, so now she knows. She knows. There's a humorous rejection letter. There's quite a lot of humour in this movie, actually. Uh, just so acerbically worded. Just saying, this is the worst novel I've ever, ever written. Please, you know, do yourself a favour and go jump off a bridge kind of thing. And of course, uh, it, it, she takes it really badly. So she says that she's going to go to the doctor because she needs uh, IUD reinserted. That's right, yeah. And she drags uh, Zorg along with her. But she doesn't go to the doctors. She, unbeknownst to Zorg, she goes to an apartment. It's the apartment of the publisher who wrote the scathing letter. And she slashes him. <laughs> yeah, she slashes him with a metal comb across the cheek. I used to have a metal comb. Can you still get them? I, you can't get those anymore now. You got, it's like getting slate products from the Lake District. <laughs> Not available anymore. Not as good as a Clairol Foot Spa, which I really recommend, despite the electrocution risks. Okay, <laughs> so... What are we up to? She winds up arrested. She winds up arrested for slashing a guy in the face with a metal cone. Yeah. She does. He has to go to the police station. But not for sticking a fork in a, in a, in a customer, strangely. <laughs> anyway, yeah, sorry, they must have... Hang on. She winds up arrested, so Zorg goes to the police station. He chats with the copper in charge. And the copper himself is a writer. He's written a crime novel. More Gallic humour here. Yeah, and he's also having trouble getting it published. And he's very bitter about the whole... Publisher business. <laughs> They're all bastards, which is true. I mean, but Zorg resolves at this point that he's going to fix this. He's got to get Betty out. So he goes back to the publisher's apartment and he threatens the publisher, forces him basically not to press charges against Betty. This is one of the times that we're seeing. I mean, I suppose he's been sacrificing all along, but 
you know, he's he is prepared to go out of his way and do things for the sake of Betty, isn't he? Sometimes yeah. quite risky, crazy things. But he's clearly besotted by her. So, in the end, the charges are dropped, is that right? Yeah. Everything is okay, isn't it? And things go back to... Oh, I'll tell you why. Because the police officer says, there's one way you can get around this. If... Yeah, he goes around He goes around to the publishers and forces him to drop the charges, yeah. Well, they're trying to have a baby, aren't they, at this point, I think? Eddie's mum dies. And whilst they're yeah. having a party, Eddie gets a call. And it oh, yeah. kills the mood. And so... They all of them decide to go to the French village where Eddie's mum lives. And owns a piano shop. So they drive there in Eddie's Citroen. They didn't want to let him drive all that way on his own when he's in a grief-stricken mood. But there's a really charming scene. And again, it's pure style. But I thought it was brilliant. Where Zorg goes down into the piano shop showroom. But he plays a little tune. And Betty comes down to another piano joining in by just by adding a few actually and I've read somewhere that she plays the blue notes but they make this beautiful little tune that you're going to hear for the rest of the movie actually and it's really kind of uh, moving I thought if anyone wants to cosplay this movie with Richard then uh, I think it's available <laughs> in the Manchester Greater Manchester area I take it you weren't charmed it seems like you felt it was cheesy no, and smoky. I did like a lot of, I, I, I love the Sorg you know because he's like he's so metrosexual for the age like because he offers cigarettes to like some driver and he's like oh those are puss cigarettes and Zorg's like yeah so what <laughs> and then later on he's in drag you know and he's just like he's very comfortable with who he is isn't he you know I think he, maybe he's, he's a little angel from the future kind of thing as a character but uh, I, it wasn't I wasn't taken with it Richard uh, I, one I was really enjoying the sumptuous visuals two I was thinking, this isn't like the Sartre-esque, you know, or Samuel Beckett's kind of... Samuel Beckett's not French, but he's adoptive French. Kind of descent into intellectual hand-wringing that, you know, you might expect French a French movie to be. It's quite nice. But I wasn't really getting into the characters that much, to be honest with you. Um, it does do these weird things. Like, what happens next is... Eddie basically gives them his mum's mom's old house and piano shop. Yeah. Uh, to live in, and says, I think he's, the idea is to sell off all the pianos. The funny thing is that Betty Betty still has to destroy how she's been given. You know, it's <laughs> yeah. like she knocks down walls. This time with permission, but she still knocks down walls. But on the first night they're there, Betty's having conniptions about sleeping in the bed of a woman who's died in the bed. Fair enough. Fair enough. Right? You can't disagree with that. And it winds up, after a bit of an argument in the middle of the night, with Zorg carrying a mattress downstairs and putting it on the street. And I remember thinking, oh, there you go. You'd probably get in trouble for doing that here because the binmen wouldn't take it and stuff. And then the next scene in the morning (laughs) is the binmen arriving and saying, well, we can't take that. But it's not because of council edicts or anything. It's because (laughs) the one-handed binman driver guy... Lost his hand. He lost his hand to a mattress... (laughs) eaten up by a, by a dumpster truck. So he's got, it's bin men PTSD is the reason they won't take the mattress. <laughs> this is very French humour. And it is funny, but it's like, it's not quite how we find things funny in the UK. Is that It is very funny, no. nonetheless. Yeah, yeah. You're right. Yeah, there is a strange sense of humour in it. A, a bit later on, there's another scene where he's he's got, he's borrowed someone's truck to take a piano somewhere. 
And uh, they're using yes, the crane. They're using the crane to lift a piano onto the back. Yeah. And the hydraulic fluid comes out and squirts all over him and his mates. <laughs> it's like pure slapstick. And then on that trip, he's rushing. Th- you know, he's he's, he's rushing through the, the hills with this thirty-ton uh, truck, going twice the speed with twice the weight, with no license. He gets stopped by a policeman, and he says, "Hey, I'm having a baby." And the policeman weighs him through. That's all very Gallic. And the policeman has like an existential thing about being. He does. A father. He starts singing a really beautiful song, actually. <laughs> hold hold the hand with a child, lead them towards the future. It's really nice in French. Did you watch it with subtitles or, or, or in English? Subtitles? I don't think there was an English dub. No, there wasn't an English dub. So the song is actually generally beautiful. I guess it's kind of nursery rhyme, but quite very, very philosophical French nursery rhyme about, you know, about having kids and, and leading, leading them towards the future. Uh, yeah, and that was all done in the, in the glorious sunshine of the south of France. And wow, I mean, you can't really knock this movie for looking good and feeling good at times. Uh, because tragedy is happening. They're failing. To, I mean, she's failing to get pregnant, and uh, this is really affecting her mental health, isn't it? Oh uh, yeah, that's going to make make a psychic break, isn't it? Ultimately, they've bought though. Back to the carpool, and they've bought uh, a, a yellow Mercedes two thirty. Oh. At some point, he drives her out to this beautiful bit of countryside. Again, it's more. French tourist board stuff, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Yeah. You see yeah. all kinds of landscapes and, and villages and stuff in this, but they go to this beautiful bit of countryside with a lake and a, a little rundown place, a farmhouse or a cottage or something. And he's explaining. I think he's trying to say that he's he's he has bought this for her, or he's gonna buy this for her. Yeah, it's gonna be their place. It's really rom- so romantically beautiful. It's amazing. He's also bought a car for her. So, I mean, he spent all his money on poor Betty. And I guess he has to find finance for even more. But Betty already has started to become depressed, hasn't she? I think. When they go to the lake, isn't that a cheer her up kind of thing? Mm. Yeah, because because Katie says, jump in the water. And then she's kind of like flops in the water as if she's trying to drown herself kind of stuff. Oh, that's a different... No, that's when Katie... You mean Lisa... Lisa, I'm sorry. That's when Lisa and Eddie come by for a visit. She's already depressed at that point. In fact, she's basically catatonic, isn't isn't it? Yeah. She at that point. Just before that, they went out for a Chinese. Which again, perhaps that seemed exotic in 1986. But Betty wears one of those uh, Chongsam dresses. Chipao. 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 In China. But I don't know about. I think Chongsams and Chipaos are still okay here. But not 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 during Halloween parties, I don't think. General consensus. <laughs> yeah. So Betty had thought she was pregnant. She has a pregnancy test, but when she goes to the doctor and tests, it turns out Finally, she doesn't. Turns out negative. Yeah. And really, she breaks at that point, doesn't she? She disappears for a bit. Eventually, Zorg comes back and finds her and. She's basically wearing clown makeup. I wasn't really sure I understood that. Again, at this point, he decides to imitate her clown makeup by throwing the food on his face and then trying to initiate violent sex with her. Yeah, I didn't understand that either. I didn't. I don't understand why he initiates sex to discomfort her. But maybe just maybe it's their thing. Maybe we're supposed to know that they're both happy with that happening. I don't know. Well, I think Zorg knows that she's seriously ill at this point, doesn't, doesn't he? And he doesn't know what to do. But yeah. his solution is even more bizarre and really this is a strange insertion into the film because as you say no nobody did he decides to go and rob some security 
thing, cash delivery place. Isn't in it? drag. Yeah, so he dresses in drag in one of Betty's beautiful red dresses. He looks pretty good, actually. He, he pulls it off stopping, well. Yeah. yeah. If and the security guard thinks so too, because he sort of asks her for a number and stuff, doesn't he? <laughs> he doesn't give it. He just gives his name, Josephine, apparently. But he he breaks into this place, steals a bunch of money, and he ends up taking her on a seaside trip to perhaps cheer her up. Maybe. That's where they started, I think. I don't know that it's the same place. Maybe, maybe not. But they end, they end up in a car- around a carousel, don't they? In echo of, the, of their starting location, kind of thing. Betty kidnaps a kid. And she goes <laughs> to she goes to a toy shop and hires an entire floor and hides in a teepee. In a teepee, more. Now, have you ever seen The Hangover? Hangover Two or Hangover Three? <laughs> yeah, it's like Alan does exactly the same thing. <laughs> I'm just realising now that there are probably many movie references to Betty Blue, aren't there? There must be, yeah. 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 Which only now would I ever recognise, yeah. Um, Zorg finds her and they escape before the parents arrive. Um, but then possibly the worst thing next that happens, which is... Oh, horrific. He goes out shopping to the supermarket and he comes back and there's blood everywhere and... The milkman guy from next door is cleaning it all up and explains. You don't see any of the what happened. It's really well shot. You you, you just you just feel that she's dead in there, you know, kind of thing. Uh, but Rich, as it turns out, yeah, apparently she's poked her eye out and she's been taken to hospital. And ironically, at this point, Zorg learns that he's going to be published. He gets a letter from a publisher, so it's yeah. like this bittersweet moment. And. It, Interestingly, just like Requiem from a Dream, which I guess we decided was set in the 80s, or 70s or 80s, but again, the medical professionals don't come off very well in this film, do they? Because Betty's time in the hospital is not very good. They clearly think that she's mad. I suppose she has poked her own eye out, let's face it. They're keeping her on a lot of drugs, and she's basically catatonic. She won't respond Mm. to Zorg. In the the plot notes, is. Catatonic schizophrenia. Uh, I'm not sure about the accuracy of how that illness would develop compared to Betty's behaviour and symptomology, if you like. But, but yeah, I mean, it's 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 art. It's not it's not uh, psychiatry today, is it? But so, but yeah, the ECT stuff and just the way that the medical profession is presented, I think, as being uncommunicative and quite harsh. I, I'm not sure if that was accurate for eighties France. The shocking ending to this film, which perhaps is one of the reasons it gets remembered, is uh, that Zorg decides that what he has to do for Betty is to suffocate her. Mm. And since he's been thrown out of the hospital, he has to dress in in drag again, go in so he won't be recognised by the staff, the medical orderlies. And he takes a pillow and suffocates her with it. Mm. And, you know... I didn't like the ending, because, I mean... Uh, he's not presented anyway. You know, we're just left with you know a, a straightforward image of him, and I'm not sure him being, if you like, not the hero but the central character of the movie. And then for this to happen, that I think there needs to be some sort of some sort of uh, authorial comment here in the movie. I, I didn't like the way it hung there. Is it's like okay, he's killed somebody, and we're not going to talk about that. Mm. I mean, I think it it does take you on a, this journey. You do kind of earn it. You know how he must feel. 
mm-hmm. and that he's got to, you know, he's got to resolve this. And it's depicted as a mercy killing, isn't it? You're not supposed yeah. to feel that he's wrong to do it. Uh, he certainly was wrong, though. I mean, yeah, absolutely, yeah. And that's what I don't but, like about it. You see, because yeah. it is just depicted as one way mercy killing kind of thing, and the fact that he gets away with it completely. You see, and, uh, it, I mean, the, the plot is set up to present it that way. To, I, I don't think you could argue otherwise. But no, I mean, I, I we don't even get his inner thoughts at this point, do we? We got a bit of voiceover at the end. But oh. I can't really recall what it was. I don't... But it was the nineteen eighties, you know. The fact that this this stuff is even addressed in movies in the nineteen eighties, as sensitive as it was, I think is enough, isn't it? Really, in historical judgment of this movie. Well, that's the end of the film, Paul. Mm. Are we at a stage where we can begin to score this? Yeah, I can I just say, you know, aesthetics versus depth. It wasn't a deep movie, but I don't think it was as vacuous as people make out with cinema do look, you know. The aesthetics themselves, you know, are are an achievement. Uh, and the fact, you know, that it is, I think, you know, a a valid representation of the roller coaster driver relationship. I think I think that's worth its it that's worth itself enough, I think. There were one or two attempts to sort of be sophisticated. Uh, at the introduction, I think it's Zorg with the voiceover says that you know, Betty has a psychic antenna and a heart made of tinfoil, which was very, very poetic. And then he says, Betty is like a hamstrung horse wanting to jump to the meadow across the, across the wall, but not realising it's still just a, just, just a, a pen or a containment. I just thought I'd put those two in, Richard. Very <laughs> philosophical Gallic moment. Uh, you know, love is not the same thing as happiness. No. Uh, that's an important life. But this isn't even contentment. So there we go. You're two steps away from contentment. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I was genuinely charmed by this. I liked it a lot more than I was expecting to, and I can well understand why people, you know, view it as a cult or whatever. However, you might view it. Yeah, thirty-seven point two in the morning. It's called in French, which is hot. It's ninety-eight point six degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, ben X is the director and writer of the script, although it comes from a 1985 novel, the name of which, sorry, eponymously named, but by 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 whom I don't quite remember. But Ben X himself made his, made his living before you know he broke into conventional filmmaking by being a commercial movie maker. So he used to make adverts, and that definitely comes through, I think, in this. You know, oh yeah, you know his his ability to frame something for thirty seconds. It's a real strength here, isn't it? And I think that's really why people are saying, oh, it's, it's all look and, and no content. There is content here, but it's maybe overshadowed by superlative looks. But I think compared to other movies, there's just as much content in the movie. And so I don't really agree with the detractors of Cinema Do Look saying this is just, you know, a vacuous stylism. It, it isn't. I mean, this is a, a movie that works uh, with or without... The uh, the amazing visuals. Philippe de Gian, Gian is the author of the book. Uh, so, sorry for slaughtering that pronunciation. Yeah, thirty seven degrees or thirty seven point two degrees in the morning. In the morning, is, yeah. is a fr- Le Mantin is the French, um, which I I read uh, was descriptive of a woman's body temperature during ah, ovulation. Thank you. Mm, interesting. Um, 
Yes. So, Paul, should we do acting? Uh, yeah. The acting was great. I'm going to score an eight. That's all I'm going to say. I think an eight is a fair score. The two leads are very good. Some of the supporting cast are less convincing. Um, I'm really not sure about that family next door, the milkman and his wife. They they were like out of a like 80s sitcom, like George yeah, and Mildred. Yeah. Yeah. But maybe, maybe we're missing some Frenchness there, I don't know. Beatrice Dahl, for a first showing, amazing. Just, Absolutely. And, amazing. and so captivating, you know. Yeah, she inhabited that role completely thoroughly. Yeah, um, There was a really strange scene between Eddie and... Uh, just after the olive salesman, between Eddie and Zorg, where they're just laughing uncontrollably in the yeah. car, like over and over. Through, that was about amazingly nothing. done. I didn't really understand... I, I think... Is that not just a heavy-handed way of saying that these guys get, get on well together? They got on really well, yeah. But they, they gelled. Their humor was the same. Like they were, after, they were bullshitting about their jobs, and they knew each other was bullshitting, and they just carried on, kind of thing. I suppose it's got to sell the fact that Eddie's going to give him his house in the beautiful French yeah. village hmm, when it's inherited. Yeah. Uh, so let's talk about the plot. Plot. I mean, the three-hour decision of the director's cut maybe makes this different to how I would normally view it. As a two-hour movie, definitely I would score the plot high. Uh, it does involve you. Uh, there are some twists and turns, some of which are slightly ridiculous. Uh, the fact that it's, you know, all this suffering uh, and emotionality is done on a roller coaster ride of, uh, of French scenery is, is even better. Like, uh, only the French could suffer in such wonderful surroundings, I think. Uh, so generally, yeah, I mean, the plot worked for me. The mental illness aspect's a little bit unconvincing, but the rest, I, I felt it worked, it gelled, and uh, yeah, I'm going to give a score it a seven. Yeah. <clears throat> I can tell you're not as happy with the plot. I Well, look, as you say, it's not as deep as you might have expected it to be. No. It's a, a very... It's emotional. It's an emotional, very deep, intimate look at a love affair. Yes. And... I think it benefits from a longer runtime. I genuinely do. I mm-hmm. I felt like I spent long enough with Betty and with Sorg to understand their deep and enduring attraction and and love for one another. You know, it's other than that, other than that, it's a story of uh, you know an unfortunate decline, a mental decline, ultimately, mm-hmm. and it's quite nihilistic in that sense and. I'm not sure what we're to, to learn from it. I'll give it a seven. Okay. Uh, I think we have to do visuals and, and scenery. Yeah. Cinematography, yeah. And cinematography, yeah. Yeah, I mean, the, the location is a, a big element of this, you know. It takes you from the beautiful beaches and sunsets of one part of France to Paris. Mm-hmm. We don't actually see much of Paris itself. You know, we see a charming French bar and stuff. This amazing village in the countryside again. The visuals, though, throughout, and the use of colour, the very careful use of colour, and the repeated themes of yellow and blue, the very 80s pastel kind of affectation of it all. It looks amazing. No wonder it ends up as a poster everywhere. So this has got to be a nine for visuals, isn't it? Yeah, I'm going to score it a ten, because why not? Oh. 
I, I know people of origin are going to say, well, you know, it's just that tacky poster. It isn't. I mean, it's so much better than the poster. In any case, Betty Blue poster was better than the ghost poster that everybody else had up in their dorms at the time of university. So, so, so yeah, a 10. Why not? This still looks stunningly sophisticated, convincing, and uh, inviting. So, so yeah. And what's the, do we have another category? What, cars? Car porn? Uh, <laughs> I don't know. Uh, we'll just do overall. We'll just do overall then. Overall, yeah. With, Again, though, like Shortbus, I'm not sure who you see this with. Obviously, I mean, obviously with a lover. lover. maybe. Yeah, but, you know, what you're saying to your lover, you know, please don't go mad and poke your eye out. Um, because I'll uh, have to suffocate you. <laughs> or do go back, poke your eye, poke your eye, poke your eye. Then I can write write a novel about it and get published. You don't want to see this with anyone who's trying to get pregnant or anyone who's had a miscarriage. That would be a disaster. No, there are bottle, there are warnings on the bottle for this movie. I think definitely, absolutely, there are trigger warnings all over this uh, this film. Uh-huh. Before we get to final scores, can I just say that Beatrice Dahl herself has had an interesting life since she became famous. Uh, she was doing shooting a, a movie, a documentary, I think, about about violent inmates and fell in love with a murderer and married him and then divorced like four months once he got released from jail. But had a five-year marriage of love letters to prison before that happened. Uh, and then she confessed recently that when she was like before her. Before, before her fame, she used to work in a morgue, and her and her friends used to steal bodies and also, on acid, ate the ear <laughs> of one of the corpses. Oh my god! So she's a real life Betty, basically. <laughs> she's a real life, real life live wire. Yeah, yeah. Wow. So final scores. This is very difficult, actually. I don't giving this a final score. If you look at other people's reviews, it's it's a very well loved movie. I think I've got to give it an eight. I'm going to score it a nine. Uh, wow. I, I, I hesitate to do so because it is so well liked, but it is generally that good, you know. It is. I, I yeah. came out of the enjoying something that I thought I was dreading watching. You know, me too. I thought we'd chosen me this too. to punish ourselves, wear a hair shirt, and it wasn't like that at all. It was no. not a burden; it was a joy. Wow. Well, uh, you know, as as ever, Paul, boringly similar in our uh, film. We are. We've got to stop doing this. We need to disagree more. <laughs> I think it's mostly my fault, not yours. But there we go. Um, Richard, next week. Yeah. Uh, have we said? Have we finished saying what we've got to say about Betty Blue? I think we have, haven't we? We have. Yeah, it's sort of a yeah, love letter to, to a, an eighties film. Go see it on Rakuten. Go see it on the British Film Institute uh, streaming services. There aren't many eighties films that you could say had failed to date as well. Uh, you know, very so, few, yeah. very few, very few. Uh, so, can I put forward a choice? We'll put one forward each. Yeah, Diva is more of Cinema Du Look, one of the first Cinema Du Looks from 1981. Okay. Well... Any other options? I would like to put forward a similar movie. Ah, this time, though, directed by Gaspar Noe and starring Beatrice Dahl. No way! Along with Charlotte Gainsbourg. And it's oh, a very wow. recent film. I don't know whether... We'll, and I wonder whether we'll actually even be able to see it anywhere. But it's called Lux Eterna. Lux, as in L-U-X. L-U-X. Do you know, I think, unfortunately, it's going to be very difficult to see Lux Eterna. Unfortunately, Diva is available nowhere either. Oh, that's, shit. Yeah. <laughs> that's all our best laid plans have gone all gone wrong. So, uh, looking at our list of films, what about David Lynch's Mulholland Drive, which was last week's suggestion? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive it is. Okay. David Lynch. Definitely will be able to view that. On some streaming services. 
Thank you for listening. Until the next time. Goodbye from me and Paul. Ciao for now. Thank you.